Hello, and welcome to the Starling Podcast, a podcast about how we built Starling Bank, a bank offering a mobile-only bank account. I'm your host, Jason Maud. Today, we'll be discussing how big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence could be used in banking. I'm joined by Starling CTO, Greg Hawkins. Hi. And Product Director, Ben Chisel. Hello there. So, first of all, um, big data, AI, machine learning, how are these things going to be used in banking, do we think? Well, as a wealth of applications, I think it's fair to say that most of the initial interest, at least from the incumbents, has been around how to make existing processes more effective or more efficient. So things like fraud detection, credit analytics, clearly there are some big gains to be made there if, if they can be more accurate, uh, more reliable. Um, but I guess, as in everything, Starling's take is much more, what can this do for the customer? Um, and we're much more excited by the possibilities of um, automatically suggesting to the customer various enhancements they could make to the way they manage their financial life. Um, so if you think, for instance, these days Google can often suggest various replies for you when it, when it reads your email. Um, and, and initially that's not perhaps so useful. As they become more accurate and more uh, tuned to your style of communication, they can be very useful. Um, and if you apply the same sort of thing to the way a customer manages their bank account, then that can have some massive gains, we think. Yeah. I I think that the delineation for me is really kind of using technology to solve problems that the bank has for itself and using problems that uh, solving problems that customers have and using data for that. I I think intuitively people gravitate towards the things that they, they the problems that they have internally. So, you know, you, you mentioned things like fraud detection. Um, this is something that banks know very well. They have traditional approaches to. And so a new technology can help scale that better. They can uh, reduce the amount of uh, manual intervention and really scale their, their processes. Uh, I think that, as you say, we, we really care about solving problems for customers that they have with their money to live a healthy financial life. And this is something that, banks typically haven't spent much time on something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and actually one of the main places that we think that we can really differentiate ourselves so if we were to you know start using uh, machine learning and so on to help customers understand how to live a more healthy financial life how would that manifest itself to them what would what sort of things would they be seeing so, so for me, it's not so much about, maybe this is because I'm inherently lazy, but I don't want my bank to teach me or to make me understand. I want it to do some of the things for me that mean I don't have to. So I can imagine, for, for instance, uh, if, my, if my mobile app said to me, by the way, we've noticed your mortgage goes out on 15th of the month, yet you get paid on the uh, 5th of the month or something. We can rejig that date. We know that other people who've uh, use the same mortgage provider, have a choice of three payment dates. Um, why don't you rejig this to get more interest? Um, in fact, here, here's the phone number. Why don't you just call it now? Right? Uh, I'd, I'd click that button. Mm. Um, and it doesn't take much to actually start gleaning those sorts of insights from a, from a bank account and starting to help the customer um, and take some of the, the tedium out of um, what they're trying to do. I think that the one of the things that comes to mind is really about uh, 
experimentation. I think that, you know, we have a lot of ideas and sometimes we don't know which one is going to work best. I, I agree with the the, uh, the kind of situation that Greg describes. I, I think that there may be a space for us to not necessarily recommend things that people use their money for because we don't want to be prescriptive. We don't... Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, if, some, if, if a customer in their app goes and sets up a goal that says, I want to go and save money for this particular thing, then there is a uh, kind of an opportunity for us to help them along that direction. I, I think helping them kind of rejig their bills to save money to reach their goals faster is something that we can we can do there. Equally, there are other things we could do as well. For for example, one of the, the concepts I've batted around from a behavioral economics perspective is the idea of a regretted purchase could we give customers a, a mechanism to say i didn't actually want to do that or I, I regretted doing that and then we can tell them actually next time they do it maybe you last time you did it you, you didn't want to do it again mm. like can we are there things are like that sure? that we can exactly <laughs> yeah. an are you sure button you know yeah. because we own our technology we can actually intervene in some of those ways if we if we chose to yeah. But and I it's, think it's, it's interesting that that motivated a couple of entries in our hackathon as well earlier in the year. Yeah, uh, I want to be publicly shamed if I spend money on exactly. X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I think that it's we don't really know which things are going to help customers live a healthy financial life, so to speak. But we are in a position where we can try lots of things and measure them and see which things customers like more, which things customers like less, and we can we can iterate. I think because we have have our technology, it means that we can you know we can do take that approach the i guess the other thing that uh, is perhaps informed by the hackathon earlier in the year is the notion of those people who are not in independent or people who have um, either minors who have parents or other people have other other carers who might help them and there are circumstances when you might want to find warnings for uh, something which suggests an, an unhealthy approach to finance or, or something and, and make those warnings available to um, a nominated third party, yeah. um, which that that detection would be built on machine learning as well. Yeah, it's very similar to to fraud detection in a similar in in a kind of opposite way, right? This fraud detection is the bank sus- spotting a suspicious transaction. Actually, mm-hmm. this is a customer being informed of a suspicious transaction by someone that they're caring for. Yeah, um, I think uh, yeah. Actually, the the things that you mentioned about a hackathon just kind of really just that. Uh, highlights the number of different things that you can try out. Yeah, so there are already people out there thinking about this, using our APIs to try and implement uh, more yeah. clever use of, of money. I think one of the, the stories I I was told was uh, about the uh, kind of custom, people who are, who are bipolar and they kind of exhibit different types of behaviour depending on their mood. And so actually this is kind of a, an extension of what, what Greg describes where you can use machine learning to essentially cluster behaviours together and then kind of spot anomalous purchases uh, within the different mood as well as just at the kind of overall account level. So um, all these uh, potential applications of um, machine learning and AI are very interesting, uh, but are they all just for the far, far future? You know, where, where are we at now? What can we do right now with the, the technology that we have? Well, I think everything we've described is, is within reach. It's kind of an exciting time because 
on the one hand, you have data science as it's itself becoming a more attractive discipline. So there are, there are more people available and wanting to get into it. Uh, and on the other hand, a lot of this stuff is being commoditized by the cloud providers, by Google and by AWS, by, by Microsoft. Um, and, and so there are things which were traditionally quite hard to do not just facial recognition and stuff like that, but transcribing, natural language processing, and a whole range of AI-like capabilities, which are now freely, not freely, now commercially available behind an API. Um, and that puts them not just in the hands of uh, people like ourselves, but in the hands of any startup or hobbyist, in fact. So by providing the Starling Marketplace, um, which and, and the Starling Open API, which was really a mechanism to allow innovators um, to enter in, into a, a relationship with our customers and their data, then we're opening the floor to all, all these people and all that commoditized AI um, to, to, to move us forward. So it's not just about how fast we can innovate, it's about how fast the whole ecosystem that we're part of can. Yeah. I think for, for very kind of specific problems where you, you have a very clearly defined data set, like you know, talk, going back to the fraud problem, like we, we have a list of transactions and we have a flag that says this transaction was flagged by a human as fraudulent. That's a really great and clean set of data to train new models on. Uh, the fact that we have all of our data in one system that can all talk to the other, all of the data can be joined together to uh, to train the models also is a very big advantage we have compared to the, the kind of mythical 45 or 46 different systems that a traditional bank might have. Um, but I think those those kind of problems where you have a very clean data set and a very precise thing that you're optimizing for, we're already there. I think for the 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 bigger things, you know, you, you see something like, you know, Amazon Go, people being able to just walk into a shop and walk out and all of the different uh, technologies that are being used to recognize who they are what they're buying, how much it is kind of automatically authorized against their bank account. These are things that are being experimented with, uh, but they can all live kind of side by side with the kind of existing processes. So you're able to test things uh, side by side. And when uh, it's being proven that it is better or it's good enough, then you can start to swap over. It's kind of, you know, like having, having your hands on the wheel of a self-driving car. You know, it takes a little while to to take your hands off and really give trust in the system. Mm. So I think with some things, we're at that point where we have the system; it's running in parallel with a human still doing their job, and we're really just measuring how good a job it's doing. Mm. I suppose in terms of uh, automating processes like that, we've been doing a similar thing for for years. You know, if you think in banking in terms of credit decisioning, for example. Uh, a lot of that is done through an automated system first, and then some of the uh, the credit decisions are made automatically, and some of them are put through for sure. manual enhancement. So, so, so there's certainly precedent for that move from manual to automated. The solutions that we've had in place for you know the, the last 20, 30 years um, have largely been um, automated representations of human expertise however. So humans have designed decision trees explicitly or come up with credit scorecards uh, explicitly based on how they believe decisions should be made. Um, the move to train models based on actual data, uh, and actual data was available to test those things in the past before, and what we're doing now is we're taking 
um, the actual data labelled with whether the account or the loan or the, the deal was a good or bad one, and training models based on that, is it promises greater predictive power. Um, and potentially more efficient as well. It can be updated based on emerging conditions, um, changes in the economy, for instance. Um, so it, it should solve the same problem better uh, in a different way. Mm-hmm. So we're moving to the machines writing the decision trees, as it were. Yeah, definitely. So, so machine learning can output a decision tree as well. And that, that has a benefit compared with some other types of uh, machine learning in that it's... Um, it's quite perspicuous. So, so there's a there's a problem you have sometimes if if that you've got this opaque model which delivers a yes or no with some degree of probability, and it goes wrong, then then what? Do you, how do you debug it? How do you know? You know, and it, it, I guess it comes to the fore with things like self-driving cars. You know, when it crashes, what went wrong? Can we even tell? Mm-hmm. Now, in the case of a self-driving car, there's lots and lots of subsystems, right? So you can normally work out what what the component it was that went wrong but a decision tree that's generated by machine learning is kind of in a way the best of both worlds because you can understand to a degree what it's generated and trace the decision down i think it's something where the the kind of increasing complexity of the model means it's more and more difficult to decipher what happened right if you if you have a single decision tree with three or four layers in it that's easy to decipher if you have a decision tree forest with 200 trees in it then it's it's not yeah, but you can trace it at least. Yeah. For sure, um, I think that there's a, one of my intre- the one of the observations I've made recently, which I I still find interesting, is the the way that people with a technology background approach this problem versus people with a banking background approach it. I think it's really someone who has been doing this for ten or twenty years, and they have their scorecard. They feel very comfortable in that situation and taking the control away from them and actually using something that theoretically is more accurate faster but harder to decipher is is something that they find quite difficult whereas actually someone from a technology background just sees the metrics of precision coverage speed and thinks it's a much much easier decision and so i'd say i find that the you know trying to solve a problem like detecting whether a, a bank account is is uh, indica- indicative of, of money laundering activity is something where the rules are often very uh, kind of predefined by some uh, some regulate, uh, regulatory body. Um, actually, you can apply uh, machine learning to solve that problem in a much better way, but actually proving that and moving to using that model in its entirety is quite a challenge. Mm. Because you have to prove yourself to the regulators and, uh, and get them to accept your uh, new modelling. I think there's, there's just a really high bar for lots of different groups, even just starting with your, the internal compliance teams. It's, it's, a, it's a big step to take something that's proven to be accurate, but the regulator may not be able to audit it. Yeah. If, they, if the auditors don't have the, uh, the expertise themselves, then actually it can, it can become prohibitive. So you have this technology that has the potential to really make meaningful differences to customers and the bank, yet actually you're not able to use it to its full potential yeah. yet. Because you haven't trusted it yet. And, exactly. Yeah. So, and yeah, I guess there's a kind of parallel. If you look at um, software development, for instance, you know, we, we produce batteries of tests to give us the assurance and the confidence that we need that these things work. Um, 
But there's always the source code, right? You can always look at it and go, well, uh, I understand why it's doing that and why it's not doing that. And we're talking about a model here which doesn't quite have that level of perspicuousness. So it's understandable that that there's that sort of trust hurdle um, to be got over. Um, But ultimately, performance in in the real world wins. Mm. Mm. I think also the... So I've used machine learning and other you know other applications you may say are less less important such as retail recommendations and video recommendations and things like that one of the things that i find interesting is if you get it wrong in those applications the worst case scenario is that you show someone a video that they didn't really want to watch in banking if you get it wrong actually the the severity and the repercussions can often be quite different mm-hmm. Um, you know, declining someone a mortgage application or flagging someone as incorrectly as a money launderer actually can have much more severe implications than, than than others. So I think that that also kind of plays into the dynamics of using machine learning in a kind of very different, more fundamental and regulated environment compared to search engines and, and recommendation mm-hmm. systems and things like that. At least it's not as bad as uh, the implications of getting self-driving cars wrong, though. Also true. <laughs> so let's imagine that um, we wanted to start uh, implementing more machine learning and AI uh, at Starling. What sort of tools, um, processes uh, would we use in order to try and implement that? So, so there's there's two routes really, and and um, we will use both of them. Um, one of them is something we're already doing to a degree, which is to use um, available uh, APIs to make things easier and quicker. Um, so things like facial recognition for fraud detection um, and video transcription and, and similar things. Um, there would be no point in us building and training our own models in in those regards. It's been done for us, um, and we'll make use of those capabilities. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's I, th- I think one thing that can kind of be said about data science toolkit is it's quite varied. Um, so of course, um, where we for our basic analytics, we're currently using BigQuery, um, but on top of that, there's a range of things that um, we can and will use um, from um, Spark clusters, um, R, Python. Uh, etc and it really kind of depends on um, where we're taking it um, I guess what focusing on the toolkit kind of misses out one important thing which Ben alluded to earlier which is this kind of labeling that we need to actually start answering the questions that, that we want to do without taking our data set and labeling the appropriate things then we're not going we're not going to train anything and learn anything. Uh, and that's kind of the process that we're thinking about at the moment and trying to understand what it is that we want to deliver first. Yeah. I think on the <clears throat> on the labeling point, there's a there's a really kind of good example about all of our technology fitting together that enables us to do that for fraudulent transactions, which is, you know, in the app having a button that says the that allows the customer to say, I don't recognize this transaction. That's actually a mechanism where we can start to label all of our data uh, that doesn't require a kind of fraud expert going through essentially what's a list of predefined suspicious transactions. So essentially the best case scenario with the the old approach is that you end up kind of detecting which are which are false positives, but you never really get any false negatives. 
because the candidates the candidate set was only things that you determined to be positive in the first place. I think that allowing customers to flag a suspicious or fraudulent transaction in the app allows you to have much more data and potentially start to detect some false negatives as well. Um, and I, I think the the other kind of thing around implementation as well is a I think the the assumption that you can use machine learning by basically throwing all of your data into a third-party application and it will then produce some model for you is kind of a bit flawed. I think the uh, it's really does for me come back to the, you need to be very hypothesis-driven. It's a very scientific, uh, I mean, in its name, it's, it is a very scientific uh, discipline and you need to apply very kind of rigorous scientific processes to to building any models and, and using them so you know I've, I've been in uh, jobs before where we've just taken the approach of you know putting all of the data in Hadoop running some analysis and then building some uh, rule-based models off the back of it and then going into a process of a b testing and just starting from somewhere and continuously trying to iterate but actually the, the hypothesis in the first place was missing. And so one of my earliest lessons with this was that you need to still be very hypothesis-driven even when you have more data. Data in itself doesn't just solve the problem for you. Mm. So you have to start with an initial hypothesis. You can't just dump your data in somewhere. Yeah, I think with something as, as uh, specific as detecting fraud, actually you already have your hypothesis there. But actually when you start to talk about something like providing advice to a customer to move the dates of their direct debits. There isn't really a hypothesis there to start with. You need to refine that and start to think about the specific use cases. And actually, this is where kind of a logical problem-solving approach comes into it that needs to happen before. You know, one hypothesis to, to Greg's example before would be assuming that a customer wants to all their direct debits to come out as late as possible in the month so that they have all of their money in their accounts, and that might optimize for uh, interest. However, customers might also feel more comfortable in managing their money if the money's already left their account. And so you have two potential hypotheses that are essentially the opposite of each other, and trying to evaluate them could be difficult. And if you don't spend the time up front trying to understand what you're optimizing for, then you'll end up just going back and forth between them. Cool. So I'd like to, uh, as a final question, go back to something we were alluded to earlier, which is the potential problems with this. So if you have uh, a machine learning system that is learning how to do things, learning how to build decision trees or learning how to uh, give customers advice and so on, and it starts doing things wrong, how do you correct that, see what the problem is, make sure the problem doesn't happen again. How do you make sure that you can be reliable with this sort of machine learning? So it's, it's a difficult question. I guess the point is that depending on your algorithm, they're, they're not all totally opaque. You know, even with deep neural networks, you can start to analyze the patterns that are recognized by the intervening layers. Um, so there are approaches elsewhere, and most complex systems are built out of more than one component. So, so you can pin problems down. If you look at things like even AlphaGo, I mean, one of the reasons that AlphaGo has been so successful at playing Go is because it's composed of different neural networks, a policy neural network and the main one. Um, so th they are not black boxes. Um, even deep neural nets are, are, are um, 
able to be debugged. Um, and I guess when something kind of goes wrong, you, you can find an explanation. And of course, you can retrain or you can go back and relabel and feed things through uh, again. As long as, I mean, there's a sort of feedback cycle here, which is these things get trained by knowing whether it's right or wrong. Okay, so that has a degree of manual intervention or, or in some cases can be done automatically. Um, but that's just more of the same, more of the same. You correct it. I think the problem is not so much the ability to uh, improve it or make it more reliable or less error prone as just um, explicability, um, which is something that might not you, you might not need for technical reasons but you might need when a customer calls and says what's happened why, why has this happened um, and for many existing approaches you can produce that explicability the explanation along with the result itself um, which is sometimes less easy with a machine learning approach i think one so i think there are two things that come to mind one is uh, going back to the point about being hypothesis driven I think when you're building the system, if you were hypothesis driven in the first place, I think it makes it much easier to debug when things go wrong. I think the the other thing is that you're never really finished. I think with taking an example like fraud detection, this was something that I spent a lot of time on uh, eBay. Uh, it was a completely different type of fraud problem. It was kind of a click fraud and a sales fraud problem, but we we used machine learning to build a decision tree forest that predicted uh, click fraud. Essentially, uh, a seller buying their own items with a fake buyer account. And we built an algorithm that detected them. We had kind of 99% plus uh, accuracy and the same for uh, coverage in our, uh, in our validation set. And then we launched it. And within two days, all of these fraudulent sellers had completely changed their behavior. And so I think it, it really is a, an ongoing battle with some of these things where you, you change your technology, which incentivizes people to behave differently. And often the people who behave differently are the people who you're trying to catch. And the people who don't change the way that they're, they're behaving are the people who you're not trying to find in the first place. And so I know it's not quite answering the question of, mm -hmm. uh, potential problems but it is something where you you think that you're done and then the carpet kind of the rug gets kind of pulled from under you and you have to start again so it really is a an ongoing problem and you know something that you're never necessarily going to be finished with which maybe is whether well, maybe the problem is the the expectations that people have of machine learning that you build a machine learning based system it solves your problems for you and then you don't need to worry about it anymore, which is not really how these things work in practice. I guess an interesting question as well that uh, begins to emerge is when to use machine learning for a problem and when to just code the algorithm in your head. Mm. Um, and I think in most cases that's quite clear because um, availability of data you know, is a big point uh, and the complexity of what you're, you're trying to deliver or the, um, the ease of just seeing that algorithm. Um, but there are cases where I think it becomes a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I think also it, when when you're using machine learning, it it doesn't mean that there isn't a role to play for human intuition as well. I think that we we are intu intuitively very good at understanding and interpreting very complicated data sets and making intuitions based off those. And so, it kind of goes back to the point around diagnosis as well. Actually, 
humans are very good at doing this and so I don't really believe in the approach of just letting the machine do its job in the background. It is something where we do have a continuous ro a role to play in this. Okay. Thank you very much. That was a fascinating uh, journey through the uh, the potentials of machine learning, the problems, and uh, uh, once again, uh, providing something that won't be a silver bullet uh, for us, but uh, certainly will be, uh, has a lot of interesting things that we could do with it in the future. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. If you'd like to know more about Starling Bank, you can follow us on Twitter at Starling Bank and visit our website starlingbank.com. You can download the Starling Bank app from the iTunes App Store and the Google Play Store.